0: Hi, welcome to the podcast for Rock Hill Church. We're a spiritual community committed to being and making disciples in the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ here in Lawrence, Kansas. Here you'll find recent sermons and meaningful conversations on living and learning the way of Jesus. We hope this podcast encourages you, inspires you, and reveals the work of God in and around you. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. You guys yesterday, didn't you? Kids! Hey, you know what? Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Can you read what's written at the bottom of the page? Just <laughs> missed, There you go! Hey! <laughs> Bye, kids! Thanks for being with us! Thank you! <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like them in here. Good morning. We we've been in the Gospel of John. You may know that in our learning time together for several, I think since the first of the year, actually. We're getting ready to jump in chapter eight. We're jumping out though today. We're going to probably do this once a month or so, and and talk about what it means to engage the issues. Of our lives, our times, our culture. So today we're gonna start. This is our first installment. We'll start with a question. You ready? It's a really serious question. You ever seen a good fastball? That's her question. Ever seen one? Nolan Ryan. You ever heard of Nolan Ryan? He once threw a ball 108 miles per hour, George. Can you hit a ping pong ball that far? I don't know. Okay, 40, yeah. He's the greatest fastball pitcher ever lived. Next week, we're going to have a common meal. Emily will say a little bit more about that later. We're actually going to play wiffle ball. You won't see a good fastball next Sunday at all, unless like 53 miles per hour is intimidating to you. You won't see a good fastball next Sunday. There's two, what's a good fastball? What, what determines a good fastball? So there's kind of two ways to think about it. One is kind of the simple way, the, the speed of travel of the ball, how fast it's going. The assumption is the faster, the better. Nolan Ryan, no one has thrown as hard as him except a guy that pitches for the Yankees now out of the bullpen, Chapman is his name. Throwing really hard works really well in high school and at the county fair. Pretty impressive. There's a second way at which you have to evaluate fastballs, especially after high school. And that's by its effect. In other words, said simply, its ability to get batters out. That's how you have to evaluate fastballs, because as it turns out, a good fastball has to be measured not just by the speed in which it's traveling, physics measures, but there's a lot of other factors, like where it arrives at home plate, the spin at which it's arriving home plate, which is dependent on the grip and the release of the ball, the ability of the fastball pitcher to keep the hitter off balance using variation of speed. Other pitches. So there's a lot that he has to concern himself with. And there's, so there's this common element of hard-throwing pitchers. It's, it's kind of a disease all of them have. Um, and that is what worked in high school, if they go to another level beyond high school, generally speaking, doesn't work anymore for them. What served them well you can throw the ball past people without them able to put their bat on it. Normally, it doesn't work in college or at the professional level. What they learn is there's this little inconvenient lesson, and the harder they throw it, the harder good hitters hit it. Back the other way. So pitchers have to learn a new way. They have to learn the way of wisdom in their pitching. If they don't learn the way, they don't learn the nuances of pitching that wisdom will demand from them, well, they've still got the county fair that they can be successful at. But on the field of play, they're going to struggle. So what in the world does that illustration have to do with our topic today, you're asking? Well, quite a bit, actually. Because our topic is living with a Christ-centered lens. A Christ-centered life, living with a Christ-centered lens. We'll say more about that. But like a good fastball pitcher, we have to learn the way of wisdom. If we're going to interpret, if we're going to see the issues of our lives, the issues in our community, the issues in our culture, well. So I'm going to use a big word for a minute, hermeneutics. How many of you have never heard that word before? You can be honest, it's a safe place. A few of you, yeah. Hermeneutics is just a big word that means the art of interpretation. The art to see something Receive something, interpret something, and then engage that something effectively. Well, like a pitcher engaging a hitter. Hermeneutics is the lens by which we see. That's, that's all it deals with, is the lens by which we see. What are the issues in our own lives? We have complexity as human beings and the issues of our own lives. Prophet Jeremiah says, the heart's deceitful. It's above all cure. So we need a lens to even understand who we are, don't we? What is it that makes me tick? What am I good at? Where's the fractures in my life? We need a lens to understand ourselves. And as we grow and mature as human beings, we understand that. Like, this isn't quite as easy as I thought. I'm a bit more complicated We need a lens to see the issues in our culture. Probably don't need to be told that. There's complexity in the issues of our culture. If we're going to understand them well, we've got to have a framework by which to see them clearly. If we want to engage them well, we need to be able to see them as accurately as we can. Otherwise, our engagement's going to really be off. When our engagement's off, not only do we not help, sometimes we hurt. Sometimes people get hurt when we're not seeing things well and we're operating out of what we're not seeing well. Even in community like ours, we need a lens by which we're seeing and trying to understand one another because we're trying to share in a life together. And so we have issues too. We don't have to look outside our own walls. How do we have a good lens to look at the issues of our lives and our community In our world. So here's the big idea today in one one sentence We need a lens, a hermeneutic, that is anchored in God's Word, in His Scripture. We We need one that's guided by God's Spirit. We need His Spirit to guide us. And we need a lens that has Christ at the center. At the focal point. Because that is precisely where Scripture presents Christ to us. At the very center. So, repeat that and maybe pack it. Let me do it by saying two things. First, if we have any hope of understanding the important and pressing issues of our lives, our community and culture... We can't operate like a 19-year-old hard-throwing fastball pitcher who's still wondering what's wrong with his fastball and why it's not working. We have to learn wisdom. And like effective pitching, wisdom is nuanced. For Scripture presents to us not just one way of seeing, but a confluence of ways, a multiplicity of ways. More than one way of seeing the issues of our lives, our community, and our cultures. Ways that give us knowledge, ways that bring us wisdom, and ways that equip us to be a people inhabited by a personal God who are inspired by how he's spoken, and who are being equipped and guided by his Spirit. Who courageously, but with knowledge, engage the issues. That's the first thing. Secondly, relates to our mission of helping others become committed followers of Jesus, a.k.a. disciples. The second point is we don't have a chance of truly making disciples among people unfamiliar with God and his truth unless they see truth alive in us. So our lens can't be just about having the right answers. The truth has to be inhabiting us as human beings. And that's how Jesus and the Holy Spirit arrive on the playing field. That's how they help us. Got it? Those are the big ideas. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? So I've mentioned three trusted sources of truth that serve as lens. Did you catch them? We'll call them our hermeneutic trifecta. There's actually more than three, but these are the big three. We won't deal with We're really just going to primarily deal with two uh, today. By the way, the way that we're doing this Engaging the Issues uh, series is we're going to try to interrupt John once a month, bring it on Sunday morning, that's today. And then on some Tuesdays, as many as we need, we're going to, those who want to just dialogue about it, we're going to meet up here together. So we're doing that this Tuesday night. Emily will say a little bit more about that before we go home. Uh, Tuesday night we'll gather here and just I'm not going to stand up here and teach I might do a little bit of teaching but it'll be in the form of dialogue so I hope you can make that we will zoom it um, and so if you want that you need to make sure you tell us and we'll send you the link um, now just kind of warning about that zoom is fine but we just keep in mind we're dialoguing so We don't have a lot of high-tech equipment to make the dialogue really professional, but we'll do the best we can so you you can hear the dialogue. So, the hermeneutic trifecta, Scripture, that's God's written Word that was inspired by God and, I'm so grateful, has been preserved by God. The second is Christ. Christ our Lord, our Savior, our Rabbi, Christ the head of the church, the Word who became flesh, who inhabits every follower of his, in whom we are admonished in Scripture to dwell in. The word is used, abide. That's the second member of our trifecta. And the third is the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit whom God gives, whom God gifts to every believer that's inhabiting every believer who brings spiritual birth. And that's an interesting thing. Jesus inhabits the believer as well as his spirit. Uh, They're both there. There's overlap. It's Jesus' spirit. That's part of the mystery of God's person that we call the Trinity. Trinity. But the Holy Spirit animates and energizes and equips, enlightens, convicts us, among other things, in the church, to imitate Jesus and fulfill his mission. So scripture, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Now, here's our challenge this morning. There's no way we can deal with this topic exhaustively in the few minutes we have Wisdom doesn't work that way. You can't listen to one podcast or one teaching or one sermon and, like, got it. It's just not the way wisdom works. Wisdom is a formative process in the mind and heart and soul of a human being. And experience also is part of the teacher of wisdom. The events and circumstances and relationships of our lives. Those are other ways God is with us and teaches us. So all we can do this morning is kind of give you an introduction. Uh, for some of you, this is pretty new. For some of you, it, it may not be. Uh, but we are going to stay with this topic as long as we need to on Tuesday night. Because it's an important topic. In, in fact, over the last few years especially... Uh, as I've dialogued with mentors like George and my spiritual director who lives in Colorado, and other, I have a friend who lives in South Africa, talked about these issues, some of the issues we're dealing with in our culture, in our community. It seems like almost every time we're having a really meaningful conversation, it, it always comes back to, you guessed it, hermeneutics, over and over again. It'll come back to this. What lens are we using to understand what's going on? So this morning, the few minutes we have left, we're going to consider two sources. Scripture, uh, we like to refer to it as biblical authority. And then the supremacy and authority of Jesus. Those are our two lens we'll take a brief look at. So let's start with Scripture. God's written word. So a core affirmation of our faith is we hold to the authority of Scripture for our faith as well as our practice. For what we believe and the way we live our lives. We believe God's written words, I believe God's written word has authority for how I think and how I live, the way that I live. So The big question there, it's not difficult to kind of ascribe belief. The question is, what does that mean? What do we mean by biblical authority? How does biblical authority actually work in our lives? These aren't trick questions uh, at all. They're the right questions. Where does Scripture's authority come from? What makes it authoritative? Well, fortunately, Scripture itself sheds light on these questions, and that's really helpful for us. I'm going to just give you two. One of them comes from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to his protege, one of his proteges, by the name of Timothy. Here's what he says. This is in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you've learned. And you've become convinced of, because you know, hear this, here's another source that we're not going to engage, you know from those whom you have learned it. I think he's primarily talking about Timothy's mother and grandmother here. But that's a source of Timothy's knowledge. You know from those whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known, here it is, the Holy Scripture. Scripture. It isn't, parents, isn't that compelling? From the time you are a baby, Paul says to Timothy, you've been learning the Scriptures. They're able to make you, what? Wise. The Scriptures are able to make you wise for teaching. Timothy's a pastor, he's in a position of leadership, so Paul's going to go there for rebuking, for correcting, and for training. You see the practicality that Paul's advocating of Scripture? It's one of the great blessings of Scripture. It it, it has a tangibility uh, in its nature. It's words that convey thought and ideas. So we can, we can read the words and interpret them and receive them. We, language is so important. That's one of the great blessings of Scripture. It's also one of the great challenges of Scripture. Because when we're receiving language, words, we're receiving language that was written in another time and place to another people. So, already, I hope you're starting to feel like it takes some wisdom to interpret what was being said two or three thousand years ago into a different culture and bring that to address the issues of my life, my community, and my culture. Second scripture this is from one of Jesus' right hand followers, Peter. Peter's a man who was like a bull in a china shop much of the time he was with Jesus. Made a lot of messes. I don't know if you can identify with that. He was often struggling. But as he grew, he really grew in wisdom. And, uh, and failure had a lot to do with his wisdom. He writes in his epistle, the second epistle, he says, above all, you must understand. He's writing probably a house church in the city of Rome. He's writing this group of people. It's a house church that had been, was being persecuted for their faith. They were living on the, the edge, we might say. Tough, tough place to find yourself. Above all, he said, understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Ah, they not saying something. You think about the claim Peter is giving here. That scripture isn't simply a matter of the thoughts of the writer. We're dealing with something very different, aren't we? It's not divorced necessarily from the thoughts of the writer. But that's not all that's happening here. Listen, he continues, for prophecy never had its what? Origin in the will of man. It's a weighty thing to say about the nature of Scripture. These aren't people like Shakespeare looking at a beautiful sky or a beautiful beach or a beautiful woman. Getting inspired, oh, I'm going to say something really pithy here. I feel inspired. No, Scripture never had its origin. The inception of the language and the thought that's being communicated doesn't start with that inspiration. But, he says, men spoke from God. As they were, and I didn't, I didn't get time to study this verb, and I regret it in this second that I'm talking. They were what carried along, he says, by the Holy Spirit. So something really unique is going with the creation, the formation, the execution, the coming into being of Scripture. Its authors are speaking from an origin that's divine. That's God. They're speaking, he says, from God, and they're being carried along as they write by the Holy Spirit. They're being guided by the Holy Spirit. Are they, are they robots? Do we see their pers- or do we see their personalities and themselves in it? Well, those are the kind of questions that wisdom wrestles with, right? As we deal with Scripture. Here's the big idea here. Scripture's authority is from God. If you get that, you kind of got it. That doesn't mean Scripture is divine in and of itself. If it were, it would be appropriate for us to worship it. Think about that. If Scripture itself was just purely divine, if it were God, we could lay it up here and, and all have some kind of Ritual to pay homage to it, to glorify it, to lift it up. But we understand, intuitively that's not what it is. It's, it's something a bit different from that. But its source is God. It points to God. At, it, at its inception, God was there. Wisdom. Scholars think about those kinds of things. What's that mean? You don't have to be a scholar to think about those kinds of things. Here's one way, I think, of trying to get at it. Scripture and scriptural authority is a means through which God reveals His authority. Let me say that again. Biblical authority is a means through which God reveals his authority. The authority of Scripture is God's. Does that make sense? Ask if it doesn't. I'll say, try to say it different ways. It's a means through God's wisdom, God's truth, God's thoughts. Scripture is going through them to his people. When they first came, they came to people living in time and place and culture. Specific individuals, communities, families, tribes. They've been preserved by the work of the Holy Spirit, the same one who's inspiring it. And so it's a means. So because God has his hand on it, we... We refer to Scripture sometimes as holy. We call it holy Scripture. And that's good. For it is. It's authoritative to use Paul's language because it has God's, and I love this, breath on it. It has God's breath on it. Don't you like that? It has his breath on it. So Scripture has much to say. To us about God, about His creation, including us, about God who is with us, about God and us, God who is over us, God who's alongside us, sometimes God who is in opposition to us, and God who is in us. Inhabiting. Dwelling within. Scripture addresses many issues of the people, the places, the times, the cultures in which they were written. A lot of issues. For Scripture with God as its source, was written by people who lived, I've said this already, but we always have to remember this, by people who lived in time and place and culture and in community most of the time. Some of the issues that of the times and place in which Scripture was written are still sort of familiar to us. Scripture written to people in time and place were dealing with issues like slavery. People mistreating each other. Strong, dominating, weak. Taking advantage of people. People with wealth and money extorting from the poor. Well, is that still going on today? Scripture has some things to say about that. Scripture has some things to say about how to be rich and how to be poor. So there's issues it's addressing. Scripture has things to say about men and women, what it means to be male and what it means to be female. Some of the issues of the time and place are very different than our time and place, but there's still language and communication from God about those things. So how do we discern how they translate into our lives? Well, the short answer is wisdom. That's the short answer. We have to remember that even though, yes, Scripture was always written in time and place and culture by people living in time and place and culture, we can find a lot of help in it regarding our time, our place, our culture. But wisdom is needed. Why? Because it wasn't written to our time and place and culture. It was written in another time and place and culture. And wisdom, to go back to what I said earlier, must be formed in us. We just can't listen to one thing or read one thing, and we got it. It has to be formed. That's the nature of wisdom. If we want to be good, able interpreters, that make good applications, that, that engage the issues of our time and culture, we're going to need a lot of wisdom. Because hear this, Scripture is not an encyclopedia. Scripture is more like a library. It's actually 66 books. It's a unified 66 books. It points to God. The scripture is not an encyclopedia that you just look up and get an instant answer. That's not really how it works. To treat the scripture that way is to dishonor It's to mistreat it. It's to neglect the fact that it was written by a personal God to real human beings living in time and place and culture. Does that make sense? Wisdom helps us there and we have to learn that way. You don't have to be scholars. You don't have to get advanced degrees, but you do have to give yourself to the way of wisdom if you want to interpret the issues of our times and lives in order to engage the issues of our times and lives. There, there really is no other way. It has to be handled with care and wisdom. If we don't, we're going to be like that 19-year-old hard-throwing pitcher who just keeps serving up fastballs without w- learning how to s- learn the art of his craft. So in summary, a few points. Scripture is holy. It is God-inspired. It is spirit-inspired. It inspired It is useful. It is written in time and place and culture. And it is the means, a means in which God reveals himself. And all these factors have to be working together. All of that adds up to wisdom. We need wisdom to rightly use it as an effective lens. If we're using it as an encyclopedia, or if we're using it just as... Uh, kind of a, as Tim Mackey calls it, a devotional grab bag. Well, it has answers like an encyclopedia. It has some definitions like an encyclopedia. And there's lots of ways in which it speaks to us kind of devotionally, spiritually, emotionally. The scripture is more than that. It's more like a library than it is a singular book. And wisdom helps us see that. Okay, let's go to our second source in the trifecta, and that's Jesus. And this is where I think we really can see the need for wisdom even more clearly. So I think the main thing I want to go here is this. There's a lot of big, big statements about Jesus in Scripture. Really big statements about His supremacy and His authority. And, and try this one on. In a very familiar passage to us, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me. I sit with that one for a little while. He didn't say a little bit. God, his father carved off a little bit, said, you, you're responsible for this. He said, all, all of it. Even in heaven, it's all mine. It's been given to me, implication by my Father. That's a big, big thing to claim. So, let me just run through. A couple of them will be on the slide, but I didn't put them all there. Um, How do we see Jesus' authority and supremacy in Scripture? If you're a part of this community, you've heard a lot of these Scriptures before. I reference them regularly. The way Jesus taught, that's kind of the first mention of it. Uh, Mark and Matthew tell us when Jesus taught, it was really different to people. That the way he taught, the language he used, the manner in which he delivered, all that perhaps, was authoritative for people. And they make a note to say he was different than the theologians of the day, the scholars, the scribes, and the Pharisees. When they heard Jesus taught, some of them thought, oh, man, we thought those, those guys were authoritative. We don't think that anymore. Jesus is different. Like when he's speaking, and he, even like he's like talking about birds and flowers, there's like, there's this weight to it. You know, even, even when he's like talking about a, a child, like it's, it like does something, it addresses us with authority that's really different than the really smart guys over here who had a lot of formal training kind of pontificating about God. And then Jesus comes in and starts talking about a baby. And we're like, whoa. That really hit me when he said that. So he taught with authority. When he he calls his disciples to follow him, we really see his authority. Because he's not like trying to talk them into following him. He's not like giving away, you know, falafels or, you know, whatever, extra hummus. He's like walking by Matthew. He's t- collecting taxes for Rome and saying, follow me, Matthew. And just Matthew gets up and goes. He looks up at Zacchaeus. He's climbed a tree and says, Zacchaeus, let's go to your house. He sees James and John fishing, he says, leave your business and come follow me. There's authority in the way he's calling people to him. And, and the crazy thing about it is people are actually doing it. Some of them, anyway. So there's authority in the way he teaches, in the way he calls his miracles. Boy, that's another way we see his authority. He's like exercising authority over sickness, over mental illness, all kinds of diseases over unseen spiritual powers, demons. He's casting them out of people. He's exercising authority over nature. He's telling waves to stop waving. He's doing all kinds of stuff that reminded people of what God had done in the Old Testament, parting the sea, providing food. He's, he's, multiplying some boy's box lunch, feeding 5,000 people with it. So out of this life of Jesus that he's calling, he's teaching, he's demonstrating with such authority, his followers, the next generation, start saying really big things about him. Listen to a few of them. This was a hymn. That is recording in Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him, everything was created. Things invisible and invisible, things in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And Paul likes to keep going back to the start. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. That was just for you, physics majors. Paul's like echoing where we've been in John when John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. And then Paul does, or John does something really fascinating. He gets to verse 14, and he doesn't say, and then the Word got written down. Does he? He says, and the Word became flesh. John is saying this is not just the means through which God is revealing himself. You hear this? That's the scripture. John is saying this is the means that God inhabited. The word became flesh, he says, and he lived among us as one of us. And we beheld his glory. He was full of grace and truth, like we fell at his feet and worshiped. When we failed him, we wanted to go kill ourselves. Because we had this understanding of what we were dealing with. This wasn't just a holy man, this was the holy one. Paul goes on in the hymn and says, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. So then everything he might have, the supremacy. For God, he said, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He writes in Ephesians, God placed everything under his feet. He appointed to be head over everything for the church. His body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In Colossians he writes, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's worth sitting with. In Christ all the treasures. Wait a minute, we want to engage the issues of the day Where's the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? In Hebrews, the writer says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times and many ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. Through whom He made the universe, whom He appointed heir of all things. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Finally, Paul writes sort of a formulaic affirmation of faith in 1 Corinthians. He says, in us, or for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and then see how he follows that. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through him all things came and through whom we live. Jesus is more than a means of God's revelation. Jesus is God's fullest revelation. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he says. So it's no surprise as we start to wrap up a little bit here. It's no surprise that the most poignant direct discipleship teachings in scripture go to this place. The supremacy and authority of Jesus. We already looked at his calls to discipleship. Follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. He tells... His disciples in John 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that is what I am. I am your rabbi. Paul says to the church in Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this becomes a primary method of teaching of discipleship in the ancient church. Imitation. Imitation. Christians were called Christians out of that idea. Christian just meant little Jesuses, little Christ. These are the people who are trying to act like Jesus. How odd are they? We'll call them Christians. Little Christ. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, For me to live is Christ. God is inhabiting me in such a way that he's my life. I think one of the most clear, practical, helpful is in Colossians 3 where Paul writes, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above. This has been one of the most helpful scriptures to me personally right here. When it comes to seeing The issues of my life, of my community, and of my culture. You say, how? A lot of times when things feel really challenging and I can't make sense of them, this is where it gets practical. God, I don't know what to do here, but first thing I want to do, I want to set my heart on you. I want what your heart wants right here. And then, God, I want to set my mind on you. I, I want to see and think about this like you do. Paul even goes to the point in 1 Corinthians 2 to say, we have the what, mind of Christ. Why? Because Christ inhabits us. He lives in us. I had a situation this week that was really challenging. Just something happened kind of quickly. I didn't know what to do. I knew what I wanted to do. And I had a sense what I wanted to do wasn't really what God wanted. So in that moment, I, just, I did that. I said, God, I want to set my heart and my mind on you this moment. And it, and it was just an honest request from a guy who didn't know what to do. And the Lord met me there and guided me. His spirit helped me know what to do. And I was able to move with purpose. There's so much clarity on this point. The writer of Hebrews says, Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author of your faith, He's the source. Okay. You may be thinking, So what? You're not telling us anything, we don't know. Maybe you don't feel that way. Here's part of the so what. I think our issue as is church, I don't mean just Rock Hill, but including Rock Hill, it's not that we don't ascribe to and believe in the authority and supremacy of Jesus. I think we do. We don't argue that Jesus doesn't possess authority. We believe he does. In fact, I would argue the opposite. Our belief in the authority of Scripture leads us to believe in the authority of Jesus. I think the issue relates to what do we make of it? How do we functionally live this out? Because it's one thing to make theological statements about who Jesus is, and that's good, we should. We evangelicals, I'm one of them, we like doing that. We like making statements, using words, and I'm all for that. But sometimes when it comes to how we view and look at and interpret and then engage and make decisions about how we are to live with the issues, sometimes we're all, I think, I'm not just speaking for myself, we're all left wondering where does the character and the wisdom of Jesus in this How does it come into play? Does the way he lived and the way he was with us and with people, does that make any difference here? And the way that we come at our positions? Or are we just looking for the right answer, trying to consult the encyclopedia so we can be right? As we form our positions, Are we considering not only what is right, that's important, but how do we carry it out? Especially among people who don't yet know the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And sometimes I wonder, if maybe, I'm just being curious with you here, Part of the reason, I don't think the only reason, there's much more to say about this, but maybe part of the reason we've lost so much of the footing in our culture is because of how we failed not to know the right things, but to imitate the way of Jesus and how we've carried the right things. Are we embodying the one who is indwelling in us? I'll, I'll close with this. Again, to remind you, all we're doing is introducing the topic. Jesus himself said something that I think sheds light on this for us, and this may be the best thing I have to offer. Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says, Do not think I came to abolish the law. Why does he say that? Because some people were thinking that. Jesus shows up in a culture of law-keeping and starts speaking with authority. And the people who were getting beat down by the law were going, party! Don't have to keep the law. Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. Jesus goes, not so fast. Don't think I've come to throw the law out. Mm-mm. I came to what? Fill it up, fulfill it. I embody it like like, a, like one of those old crusty sheriffs in old bad western movies. Son, I am the law. That's what makes me think of. Uh, I am the law. Learn my way, my truth, my life. I want I want you to become not not just a like law abiding citizen in in the kingdom of God. No, I want to form you in the kind of person who out of a good source just keeps the law. You see the difference? I want you to keep the law not by just like determination I'm going to keep the law. I want to do a work in your life. I want to conform you to my image. I want you to learn my life. I want to inhabit your life in such a way where law keeping is like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I do that. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. So when he says this, he's starting this sermon. We call Sermon on the Mount. Don't think I've come to do away with the law. And there's two people in the crowd. There's there's a group that are like partying because they think he has thrown the, he's kicking the law to the curb. And then there's the people who are like a little bit ticked because of Jesus healing on the Sabbath and looks like he doesn't care about the law. So Jesus is looking at both groups. And he says, don't think I came to do away with it. So the law keeper's going, now it's our time. But here's where the wisdom is. It's what Jesus does after he says it. He starts illustrating it. And this is where we learn how to pitch right here. Because he says, hey, you've heard it said, the law says, don't kill. I want to say to you, if you're even nurturing contempt, for another human being. You're operating out of the same source that, given the opportunity, would kill another human being. You see what he's doing there? That's like wisdom. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. These buttoned-up Pharisees, the ones who were, didn't, were all about not committing adultery. He says, I am going to tell you, if you're mentally undressing that person or you're fantasizing what could be if only you had the opportunity, you're no different than that person who's actually doing the deed. And he goes on from there and he continues. You can read it. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters. That is where the good stuff is. It's not just in the big thing he says. It's how he talks about it. I charge you, church. I encourage you to give yourself not just to the big thing he says, but to understanding the things he's getting at when he's illustrating. Because that's where the nuance that brings us wisdom lies, I believe. So when we come to the issues of our lives our community, and our church, wisdom tells us, like, yeah, there is truth at hand and in play that matters, but we've got to learn wisdom so that we know how to live with and engage and execute, for lack of a better word, that truth in our lives. If we don't, we're, our righteousness is like the scribes and the Pharisees. Keep the code, do the right things, and you're in good standing. That's, those are good things. That's the course of righteousness. Do the good things. Jesus wants to get us the source. I don't want you just to perform so you think you're making God happy. I want you to be inhabited by the Spirit of God. So let me try to wrap this up. I wonder what Jesus would say about some of the issues of our day. You've heard it said, you should be on this side of the issue. Pick whatever one you want. I wonder what he would say next. Pick race, abortion, you can pick gender. I wonder how he would say, but I say to you, I'm not going to fill in that blank. You've heard it said, you should vote this way. But I want to say to you, I wonder what he would say. I mean, that's, that's the quest of our community, is to seek his heart and mind on the, but I say to you. Right? So let's live in the culture, not just with, like, vote this way, but, like, let's wrestle with it. We don't have to. That doesn't mean we're soft on truth. But I don't want to just throw fastballs at people and at the culture. Because I have a mission. And I have a commandment from my God that says love. So I have to work with that. If I'm going to be light in this place. And salt, and that's nuanced, and it's sometimes messy to get there, to get to that place, because I'm a broken, fractured human being, and uh, my suspicion is, so are you. You know, Cindy and I, a lot of times, we we will kind of sit and talk, and we'll look back at our lives, and we'll reflect on some of the ways we thought about different stages in our lives, and we can see now. In different times, how much we we're focused on this thing. And we were hearing the but I say to you, part of it often. And so that's forming us in the way of wisdom. Because we've, we've, we're learning that discipleship to Jesus is not only concerned with the course. It, it does care about the course. But the source is near to the heart and mind of Jesus' teaching. If we're not anchored in source of righteousness the course can't be truly righteous the right answer isn't the truly righteous way not according to Jesus our lens must be focused on him who is the source the good news about these two sources that we've talked about scripture and Jesus they don't collide Their source is both God. One of them is the means through which God is speaking. The other one is the one whom God is inhabiting fully. Wisdom helps us know how to deal with that confluence. There's other factors too. We didn't really talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in this. We touched on it. Or the voices of other people, the church, or nature. We didn't even touch that one. All those are also means through which God speaks and helps us have the mind of Christ. I hope this has been helpful. I know it's been longer than usual and it's felt a little bit more academic than a sermon, but this is the decision we made uh, to do it this way. I hope it's food for thought. I hope that I've poked or provoked or helped you be curious in a way and I don't mean that negatively we need wisdom church uh, usually that, the ideas that first blow up on media and all that stuff I would ignore them if I were you they're usually not the way of wisdom I've learned that there's always something more so we have to learn that way and the way is not complicated, it's not always easy, but we have a lens. We have God's Word, and we have Christ who inhabits us. We have a Spirit. He will help us. Let me pray, and then worship team, Chance, if you could come up. You might, as, as we enter this time of prayer and reflection, uh, you, I would encourage you, make a note, whether it's this moment, maybe you already have, or before you finish your day of one, maybe two things, but something that you want to think about. Maybe it's not necessarily something new, but you're like, that was for me. I want to think about that more. I want to look at that scripture. I want to meditate on that point. Or I want to ask Jim more about something he said, or someone else. Don't don't miss that opportunity. Let me pray. Lord, help us to learn the way of wisdom. We don't want to be like one who thinks, just because I've got a good fastball, I'm good. We want to to learn how to live in this world. We want to learn how to live with each other As church, your body, and Lord, we also want to learn how to live with ourselves, our own complexities and struggles, the deep waters of our lives in such a way that you are being glorified through our lives, that you are being made much of. That's, That's actually bringing healing to ourselves and The people around us and our neighbors. That's that's giving hope. Lord, and we often come to those moments like I had this week where, Lord, I don't know what the right thing is. I don't know how to think about this right now. I feel something that is probably contrary to what's on your heart. God, train us in that way to set our minds and our heart, our affections on you. Help us to train in that way, in those ways. Those ways will make us the kinds of people who are naturally living out of a source of righteousness and not something we're out there trying to make happen. We're not forcing or pushing or promoting. It's who we are becoming, who we are. Lord, that's the vision we have for this community. We know we're not going to execute that flawlessly. We know sometimes the journey to new places of growth and life for us can be bumpy. It has been. But Lord, we're here. We're here together. Lord, I'm not the benevolent dictator of this group. We have one head, and his name is Jesus. So, Lord, be our head and guide us through your spirit, through your word. Teach us. We love your word. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Bring us unity around our allegiance to your word, your written word, and your word who became flesh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.